Father, as we look at the New Testament, we see your emphasis of the cross. And we see that it is written in Scripture that it is of primary importance to us, this gospel. And we also see, Father, that it is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And Father, as we look at the implications of the life-giving cross, we pray, Lord, that your Spirit will be at work in our hearts, that we may be able to understand what this cross means to us and how do we live in response to that great gift of salvation that you have given us in your Son. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we be put right with God so that we spend time and eternity in his favor and service? That's the question that we're going to be trying uh, to answer from the passage that we're going to be looking at. Now, last week, Pastor Tim Phillips told us that there was an important meeting and the outcome of the meeting would affect us personally. The outcome would affect the gospel whether it will ever get out of Jerusalem into the world for people like us today. Tim also said Paul had talked about his own personal history as well as his message. Some people were destroying the gospel in Galatia, the very foundations Christians have to know that they are God's people. They are undermining the gospel that the Apostle Paul had preached in that church. God has made us right before him in Jesus, yet these false teachers are telling the Galatians that it is a defective gospel. It is a false gospel. It is not the real one. And this meeting in Jerusalem that Tim spoke about was, determined, uh, was determining if there was a serious gap between the gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that was preached by the other apostles in Jerusalem. If you look at the outlines, uh, we go to our first point. If you, through a door or Jew, live like a Gentile. In our passage today, we see Paul opposing Peter for something that he had done. Paul is Peter's guest, his fellow apostle, and in today's passage, he acts as his critique. He's being under criticism. And Paul writes in verse, verses 11 to 12, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, what's going on here? These are two leading apostles in Christ, face to face in a conflict. The scene shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch, the chief city of Syria. 
where the Gentile mission started, a place where the disciples were first known as Christians. First known as Christians. These were men of God who knew what it is to be forgiven by Christ and to have received the Holy Spirit. He rebuked him, he condemned him, because he had withdrawn and separated himself from the Gentile Christians, he would no longer eat with them. A group arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem. They came from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when they came to Antioch, they started preaching, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we read the background of this in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where he says, you must be circumcised in order for you to be saved. That's a bit of a background in the book of Acts. Now, worse still, these teachers started in, uh, to influence Peter, who actually, before this, ate with the Gentiles. Now, Peter is having a, a sort of change in his character, towards the, the, in his demeanor towards the Gentiles. The Jewish Christians have gone back to their old forms of the Jewish faith. One Lord, but sad to say in this matter, two Lord tables. One Lord, but two Lord's tables. That's the problem. And so in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, <coughs> I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? You yourself are not living like a Jew. You have gone into uh, this, this Christian uh, teaching that there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. Why are you going back to your old forms of religion? This was a matter of urgency. Paul had to act fast. Two Christian groups existing at the same time, one Gentile, one Jewish, unable to share the Lord's Supper, for instance. Can you imagine two groups having two different suppers in one setting? Well, if Paul didn't address this issue, that's where we would have gone to, eventually. This called Paul to be concerned. This matter had the real capability to divide the church. The church was going to be split in two. And Paul was right uh, in his stand, and he knew that he was right. Peter was guilty of hypocrisy. He had been living as a Gentile, not observing food laws, but he is now requiring Gentile Christians to observe Jews, uh, Jewish uh, table regulations if they wanted to eat with him. See what's going on here? Something like this, a false doctrine like this, would undermine the gospel. With this principle, justification, 
will be based on the works of the law and not by faith. Our next point. What does it mean for us to be crucified with Christ? What is that language? What does that term mean, to be crucified with Christ? We see it so often. What does it mean? Now, to make his argument stronger from verses 15 to 21, Paul goes into the most important doctrine that teaches us how sinful and wretched creatures like us become right with a holy God. Not because of what we have done, not because of our works, certainly not that, but through the uh, act of trust in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on our behalf on that cross. Paul's explanation is a contrast between the Judaizers' doctrine of justification by works of the law and the apostles' doctrine of justification by faith. That's the contrast here. He tears down one to build the other. And in verse 15, uh, verses 15 to 16, he says, We ourselves are Jewish by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. <coughs> the law here means all of God's commandments and the works of the law are acts done in obedience to, the, to their requirements. The Jews suppose that they could be crucified by keeping the, they, they could be justified by keeping the law. So did the Judaizers who professed to believe in Jesus Christ but wanted everybody at the same time to follow the law of Moses. There was this gospel plus. And in all of the New Testament, we cannot find something called a gospel plus. The gospel of Christ is sufficient. It's exhaustive. And it is certainly necessary for your salvation. You don't have the gospel plus something equals salvation. That equation does not work in the New Testament. We don't have gospel pluses. We only have one gospel, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, Paul describes them as seeking their own righteousness. What righteousness are the Jews actually talking about? There is no such thing as righteous before God based on your own works. It is an impossible doctrine. You cannot, your, your righteousness, according to Isaiah, are like filthy rags. That's what our righteousness actually are. You can't be saved with your own righteousness because we are fallen creatures. Sin presupposes a person's life when he is not saved. The Jewish support uh, suppose that they could be justified by keeping the law. So did the Judaizers 
who professed to believe in Jesus Christ but wanted everything at the same time to follow the law of Moses. And Paul goes on to tell us uh, the arguments which, he, uh, which his critics use to try to overthrow uh, the, his doctrine and the argument he used to overthrow, uh, overthrow their doctrine and to establish the real one. Look at verses 17 to 18. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. In Christ then a servant of, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, it is Paul who tore down this doctrine in the first place. Now, if he reestablishes this, this doctrine, he's going to be a transgressor where God is concerned. Now, the people who were going against Paul were actually saying his doctrine, uh, were actually saying his doctrine of justification by faith in Christ only apart from the works of the law, is highly dangerous. I'll tell you why. Okay? Because it weakens a man's sense of moral responsibility. Now, that seems to be a valid argument, isn't it? If grace is just grace upon grace, can you go on sinning? Because God's grace is there? That's a, that's a pretty, pretty uh, important argument in the New Testament. If God's grace, if we are recipients of God's grace, do we, do we go on sinning because we are recipients of God's grace? Or because we are recipients of God's grace, we live in a manner that is in response to that grace, that gift. What is it? Because it weakens a man's sense of moral responsibility. If you ask me, I say it increases the moral responsibility of man and not gives him, does not give him a license to sin. If you have the authentic gospel, then holy living must follow. Then you live in a manner that will glorify your God who has died for you. If he can be accepted through trusting in Christ with any reason to do good works, that's an encouragement to break the law. That's what these people are saying. We call that antinomianism, and it's a kind of a false teaching creeping into the church, and it's very relevant because we have this, this guise antinomianism in, in, in our present time in the 21st century. We have Christians who are claiming to, to be recipients of grace, but go on sinning. There is no difference between the old life and the new. Can we do what we like and live as we please? Can we do what we like and, and live in a manner that we, we want to live? Can we? God forbid. That's what Paul says. God forbid. That's what he says, and he goes on to deny uh, their baseless allegation that he was guilty of making Christ the agent or the author of men's sins. 
That's the argument here. Verses 18. Uh, verse 18. I myself, uh, I make myself a transgressor. If I go back to the old forms of religion, I have transgressed the law of God. Someone who is united with Christ throws off the old self and puts on the new. The changes for somebody who is justified is now brought, brought out uh, by Paul. Look at verses 19 to 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified by, with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The law's demands of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. We are united with Christ in his sin-bearing death. We are reconciled. Our sinful past has been blotted out. We have risen to a new life, and we live this new life through faith in Christ. In a sense, it is not we who live uh, this life at all, but it is Christ who lives uh, it in us. <coughs> and when he lives in us, he gives us a new desire to pursue holiness. If you have the real gospel, holiness is something you would desire. Certainly not having the real gospel as a license to sin even more. The paradigm works the other way around. It's an it's a impetus. It's your motive to be holy before God. And not the license to sin even more. We see that when we come to Christ, we become more and more like Christ. Now what is that? Certainly not a license to sin more. And finally, we have seen so far how Paul argued with his critics in the attempt to uh, overthrow his doctrine now. We see how he overthrows them. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Listen, if you're going to go and bank on the law for your salvation, then this whole business of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, that's, you know, it's nullified. It's decimated. There's no, there's, no, there's no need for Christ to die then because you can work your own righteousness and be reconciled with God. You know, sometimes we, we say Jesus Christ died for our sins so very often that we do not see the power behind that statement and the implication it has for us to live a more God-glorifying life. We miss the point. The two most foundational truths are this for the Christian. It is the grace of God and the death of Christ. 
The gospel is the grace of God. The Christian faith is the faith of Christ crucified. So if anyone says that justification is by works, they decimate that grace, that rich grace. They nullify that rich grace. Now let's go into a bit of doctrine in our last point. What is this doctrine of justification by faith all about? How can anyone be right with God? Don Carson, in his book he edited, uh, he recently edited called Right with God, says this, to put, and I quote, to put the question that way presupposes that God is of such a nature and we are of such a nature, that we are not naturally right with God. Those are the presuppositions. It also presupposes that it is desirable and possible to be right with this God. Right? God bought for his glory and for our good, the most important thing that we can pursue is being rightly related to God through the power of the gospel. In our Old Testament reading just now, it was the, uh, the faith of Abraham that God counted as righteousness. Now, Abraham had told, uh, uh, sorry, God had told Abraham in Genesis 12, you know, you will have an heir coming from your own body. Right? Now, Genesis 15 happens, a few years have passed, now this child is not to be seen. This offspring is not to be seen. All right? And the passage starts with, with, with God, uh, uh, with Abraham, grumbling, where's this child? I, I'm going I'm to make a, a, the, the servant, the, ma- the manservant in my house, the heir. But God says, no, this child will still come from your body. God reveals himself. God reveals his purposes to Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He believed God. And that belief was counted as righteousness. Now, in biblical faith, true faith, uh, true uh, reconciliation with God happens when we believe God's redemptive work in our place. It's got nothing to do with works. It is all about belief. It is all about faith. A day is coming soon in which God in his judgment will punish all who have broken his laws. And the ones who are justified by faith, they have this result, not guilty. That's the judgment uh, call. Why not guilty? Because we are reconciled with God to the redemptive work of his son. That is the verdict for people like us who believe in Jesus. Not guilty. And if you don't believe in Jesus, God's judgment remains on you. God's judgment remains on you. The Gentile was a sinner because he did not have the law and hence did not conform uh, to it. And since righteousness was obedience to the, the Jewish law, Gentiles were excluded from the very possibility of being justified. And that led to Jewish boasting in religious achievements. Can you see what's happening here in the background? 
We have Jews who have thousands of years uh, called, being called the people of God as a, as a legacy, as a, as a covenant people of God. And now you have Gentiles being grafted into that same tree. But the Jews are not giving them any face in that church. And they're just holding on to the identity of being God's people when actually they failed. They failed miserably. To trust in Jesus and to be united in Him is to begin altogether a new life. If we are in Christ, we are justified. We find that we have actually died and risen with Him. Remember the two guys that went to the temple in Luke 18, 9-14? Remember that story? The two guys who went and prayed in the temple. One was a Pharisee. And what did the Pharisee say? I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. He was so full of himself, isn't it? He was so, he was so full of his own works. He did A, B, C, D, and E for God. But you know what? In the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to God. It didn't really matter to God at all. Now listen to the second, story, second, second man. All right? He went there. He couldn't even raise his head to look up. That was how shameful he was for his sin. And we see in that passage, who went back justified? Who went back justified? Not the A, B, C, D, and E. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who went back justified. Now that is what it means to be justified, okay? To be justified is to come to God and say, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I reach that, that grace for me to live. For someone has died for me in my place, for my sin. And when I believe this, I am reconciled with God. Let me close by quoting Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us pray. Lord, we, we live in a Christian world where there's so many enemies of the gospel, even within the church. And most often uh, than not, we, we see that these enemies always try and alter the theological implications of the gospel. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your revelation to us to show, that, to show us this morning that there are no gospel pluses. There's only one gospel and that it is Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. And help us to remember this, Lord, as we come across all the false teaching that one can ever come across in the 21st century. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.